Welcome to ProctorCast, where we bring you plain English interviews all about the most relevant procurement topics of the day in short, coffee break-sized episodes. Because hey, time's precious and you have got value to deliver. So now let's get straight into this week's show. Yes, hello and welcome to another edition of ProctorCast. We are your chili sauce for your procurement doner kebab. And we're actually going to be trying out a little bit of a new format this month because I've actually brought on a co-host. So before we jump into this week's interview, which is a really meaty topic that I think you're all going to get a lot of value from, we're going to be talking about business-to-business relationships and how the human touch or the human interaction is still very, very relevant despite all of the technical uh, and some of the more sort of challenging environments that we're working in with with regards to COVID and travel and all of this stuff that we're having to deal with right now as procurement professionals. We're going to have a chat about how the human impact and the people-to-people side of doing business is going to maintain its relevance and to look at a couple of examples uh, of that and have a little bit of a group discussion around how we really see that growing and developing and how we can maintain that in these crazy times. Before I introduce this week's guest, let me first introduce my co-host, who is Mr. Dave Jones, fellow co-founder of Proctopus. Dave, if you maybe just want to give a quick intro to everyone listening who maybe doesn't know you, and then I'll introduce this week's guest. Hi guys, I'm Dave. I've um, it's been a pleasure building Proctocast um, alongside James and also the broader Proctobus thing. Um, before we jump into um, Thierry's conversation, just a quick plug for our app, which is going live very soon. So keep an eye out for that on LinkedIn, and please do download. And um, I'll let James now introduce our guest for the day. So thank you, James. Yeah, absolutely, Dave. Thank you. Yes, we've got a great app coming that will really be, enable us to take our conversations off of social media and be able to sort of segment uh, anyone that follows us and wants to join in the conversation, depending on the type of topic and, and what you're interested in. So, yeah, we're going to be launching that very, very soon. Uh, just ironing out a few bugs right now. So keep your eyes peeled, as Dave mentioned. So without any further ado, uh, Thierry Fausten, Dr. Thierry Fausten is our guest on this month's ProctorCast. Thierry, warm welcome to the show. Thank you very much, uh, James and Dave, for having me today. That's uh, really a great pleasure for me. Thank you. So before we dive in, Thierry, just maybe if you can just give a quick background of of where you're coming from on this topic and and how your work sort of impacts the discussion that we're going to be having today. Sure. Um, So I've been in the procurement and supply management business for over 25 years now, uh, mostly automotive and uh, pharma industry. And since a few years, I've been running my own company. And uh, what I've seen... uh, (laughs) Is from the first days when we started to have uh, procurement systems and uh, you know the first year auctions and everything that was last century, uh, everybody's been talking about automation and that's great. However, we still mean uh, need human beings to run procurement, and uh, so that has been a keen interest of mine for for a long time, and that's why also I did research on the topic to see how the human factor. Uh, is a better enabler 
to collaboration between companies uh, compared to uh, automation on IT systems that still are limited, in my view. So I think that's really a great place to start. So Dave, do you want to just kick off this discussion around sort of technology and automation and, and where the human sort of sits in that in that sphere? Yeah, I'm really inter interested to dive into Thierry. Um, what you see the main benefits tech will bring to the procurement function um, over the next, and we could maybe keep it to the next five years if that's okay, so it makes it more, more real terms. What are the main benefits you think it will bring? And where do you think the procurement team fits in with that, I guess? I think uh, if we look at very large companies, because usually that's where most of the, of the things are happening on that, on that front, um, you see a shift in task, you see a shift in uh, speed of decision making. And this is where technology is already helping. I mean, we all know about process automation. We have all heard of uh, e-auctions, of uh, contract uh, authoring that's uh, really not enabled, but sped up by uh, automation and uh, artificial intelligence systems. So the work of procurement is going to be made on the one hand, I would say easier thanks to uh, all these systems because a lot of tasks are going to disappear. On the other hand, uh, your, the procurement function and the supply management function have to find their new niche to show what they do better than a machine will ever do. Great. And what, what do you think that niche and what do you think that new niche is? So what are the areas that procurement should step into that they haven't had time to do previously? I mean, the, the most uh, obvious uh, area is collaboration internally and externally, you know, addressing stakeholders, understanding them, sitting next to the business. Uh, it's been a long conversation. However, it was not uh, often possible due to time constraints due to co-location and uh, I think that the past 18 months have clearly shown that uh, we need also to find different ways to uh, to collaborate and talk to people. Um, I think we've seen also that uh, even when technology helps collaboration by making contacts easier, it is not always the best conduct to create uh, a rapport between people. I mean, if we take the example here, uh, we have met online many times. Uh, however, we never shook hands. And still, the, the human being is uh, an animal, and it has some very basic needs that can only be addressed by in-person interaction at a point in time. To help kind of bring it to life um, for people a little bit, if we use some of the sourcing automation products that are out there so we've got kilvar um, fair market pactum many others um, in those in those kind of use cases how do you see procurement working with the machine i guess so what what do you think the machine will decide um, and how will procurement sit above it potentially <laughs> i think that the first element that everyone has to keep in mind is that machines are uh, software, which means programmed, which means programmers. So the decision mechanisms are built by humans. So even though you could say, uh, I can give a lot of autonomy to a machine, 
this machine is always going to act within the boundaries that have been decided by men and women uh, in the business. So that's the first thing. The second thing I want to say by that is probably that these tools are better focused on will support first the very repetitive uh, side of business. I'll give a very simple example. You have a contract or you want to have a contract for something that's very basic, that's very easily compared and you want, you know, like a pen or you want a bolt that's very well defined, then to a certain extent, you can let the machine go for the market, you know, pull supplier data from a, a marketplace and then generate an RFP saying, hey, I need, I don't know, a million bolts every year. So what's the price? And given all the factors, this can be I would say rather easily automated. So the decisions are going to be in the in the sense of offering a number of solutions to a human being to decide ultimately. You can always go further by saying, I leave the decision to the machine. However, I think that it will take more than five years for people uh, buyers and their managers and the finance community and the quality people to agree that the machine is going to make all decisions in this uh, in this area. And I think that's a really interesting comment, Thierry, because from what I've heard in your answer, we're kind of splitting procurement into three separate areas, aren't we? On the one hand, we've got the transactional side of procurement or what would what we know as purchasing, which is sort of essentially the procure to pay process and to a large extent the most innovative companies or the ones at the uh, at the front of the uh, of the bell curve the early adopters have, have already automated that to a large extent uh, and and there's not really much argument there to to argue a case against doing that because it's repetitive transactional work that doesn't really require any thought unless there's a a specific problem where the computer where the computer says no essentially and it has to go back to a person then you've got the tactical work which is where the likes of tools like pactum and fair market and kielvar come in that, that, that dave mentioned where it's not particularly strategic work but it can only be automated up to a point and the the machine the ai or the machine learning or or, or whatever technology is being used can do a lot of the a lot of the spade work that that historically would have been a big time suck for the procurement professional but mm -hmm. you still need good data to feed into it as an input and and you still need an experienced professional at the other end to be able to interpret the result and make a decision and what's more getting into the human side of it to be able to sell that to the business and communicate effectively and not use acronyms and not send long emails and all the other stuff that pisses stakeholders off. Mm -hmm. um, it, still, it still needs that on both ends, doesn't it? Whereas if we go towards, and I think you, you touched on that just towards the end of your answer, if we go towards the more strategic areas of procurement, that's what you're saying we're still you know, a number of years away from machine to be able to 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 write a, a category strategy or to put together a complex RFP for for for, for a, a very technical or very detailed type of service. No, clearly, I fully agree on, on that uh, because I mean there are two key things that I would like to to add there. First, uh, you, we refer a lot about AI and machine learning and everything. 
but you have to, I mean, uh, you have to realize how specialized each of these uh, pieces of software are and the complexity for, uh, <coughs> for them to learn. You know, I'm teaching once in a while and uh, so I'm trying to keep abreast of education uh, materials and techniques. And uh, it's been recently shown that when a kid is learning its uh, mother tongue, you know, it's using about 500 to 1,000 hours of exposure per year. If you want an AI to learn a language, it takes a thousand times more data. So imagine that you would start saying Papa and Mama when you are about 500 years old. So <laughs> this puts That's the thing a great in perspective. <laughs> no, but this puts the thing in perspective. So these these machines and they are fantastic. You know, I've seen uh, in data mining, I've seen in uh, gathering and visualizing information that is very dispersed that uh, you can't easily, you know, encompass in your brain because there is just too much. These tools have a, a capacity to analyze and offer visualizations of what you have as, uh, as data in, in, in whatever data centers or clouds or anything you want to give them, you know, as a visual representation in few seconds, a few minutes, sometimes a few hour when you, hours when you have very vast amounts of data. But this is where you, the, these tools are going to give really a lot of sense to what we somehow already know, but we are not able more to uh, make come together and have more information to make the real good informed decisions you need to make, even though uh, good leaders, good managers are able to make decisions with a hundred percent or, or even I would say 70% of the information they would desire in the best case. But these tools, these machines are giving us humans the ability to have more detailed information at our disposal when we need it. Remembering always that, as you said earlier, if you have a poor set of data, there is no magic that is going to transform dirt into gold. I mean, if there is one, uh, no one's been uh, publicizing it so far. One, one question for me before James will take us to the next section is, what do you see as the main um, things that procurement people should focus on developing? What skills will people need to really thrive um, in the new, the new era of machines taking more of a role in the process? What would you advise people early in their careers or even people midway through their careers to still remain relevant? Yeah, that's a very, very uh, current uh, conversation. I think you you will always need to be able to do the job out of paper and pencil. I think that the basic, because otherwise you don't know what you're doing and you don't know what the machines are doing in the background. So this is a, a don't forget that um, you know, technical skills of the, of the trade are needed there. Where you need to develop more and better probably is first more technical skills to understand. And I'm not saying everyone has to become a data scientist by far, but you need to understand what's happening in the tools. And also what can you ask all these systems to do for you? 
uh, <clears throat> you need an understanding of that. And most and foremost, as I was saying uh, when we opened the conversation, having more time and ability to engage stakeholders internally and externally means you also need to develop your soft skills. You need to be able to converse. You need to be able to engage and be accepted more widely, more easily uh, from these people to go further in the collaboration with them, but also as basically as this, you know, to go further in your own career. Thank you so much. That's great. That's really good advice for anyone, anyone in procurement to, for the areas to focus on to ensure that they remain relevant and also get more interesting roles potentially than they've had previously. So really good advice there. Thank you so much. Thierry, do you, what are your thoughts on category management? Do you, do you think procurement being managed through categories, that model is dead or is dying? Because other than, other than very distinct areas of the business like marketing and IT, the way that the business is structured isn't necessarily the way that procurement teams are structured. And do you think if, if we are moving towards a more people-based relationship fueled by technology doing a lot of the back-end spade work, do you, do you see then procurement being a lot more agile in the way that we serve stakeholders? Ah, the requirement and the need for agility and flexibility is certainly there. This is this is clear. Um, the question being more on category management as a technique, I think it's a very valid technique uh, for many industries, for many areas. You will, it is, you know, category management uh, emerged from uh, a need to know what you spend and how you spend it, okay? And then coming back uh, on my examples of pens and bolts or nuts, um, these different things, and this can be services as well, uh, come from different markets, supply markets, to address different needs. So the fact of arranging and organizing the interaction with your internal stakeholders according to what they need makes a lot of sense. So in, in this aspect, I think category management is by far not dead. Um, if you look at the tools that are uh, and uh, the models that are used by procurement a number of years and still today, and there are, these tools and models are still embedded into the, the software we were referring to. Uh, and I'm thinking mostly of the cryogenic metrics as an example that the most well-known. Uh, that is a tool that conduces and is based on category management. It's not easy to use it in a different context because also, as I said, it's a very logical way to organize your your thing. It's like in your kitchen, you know, you probably have a, a cupboard for tins and cans, a cupboard for bottles, a cupboard for, uh, you know, flour and sugar, because these things go hand in hand. Somehow you, you mirror the ales of the supermarket no, that's that, that's interesting because I think there's, I I would to a to some extent argue against that, but I can certainly see the logic behind behind your answer. I, I do think, and this is my personal opinion, I do think that procurement ties itself up in knots sometimes because of processes and and being quite rigid in in who does what, and I do think there is a need 
for more flexibility around that to serve the business better but at the same time especially in industries like um like build build to draw industries you know does uh want where every project is different uh, perhaps not in more sort of commodity driven industries like automotive um but you do raise a good point that to be able to understand what you spend in in each sort of specific category uh, and to manage that holistically under one umbrella I, I i get that and and being able to have better supplier management i think does orient itself more towards category management i'm just not convinced that internal stakeholder management is best served in that way so it's uh, <laughs> I, I i don't really know the right answer in terms of my personal opinion on whether i would which which way i would vote on that one but but i do think there are two sides to that coin yeah i, I agree with you james the the point you know i've been working uh with a number of uh companies that are uh, in the epc business you know engineering procurement construction and uh okay it's granted that these companies are specialized you know they build one two three types of uh end products and these end products are made of a number of you know systems and subsystems and whatever and here you end up back you know, from an engineering point of view, even though you have a project manager with an encompassing uh, 360 degree vision on what's happening, you end up with a, a, a dedicated uh, team of engineers for, uh, you know, high voltage products, uh, a dedicated team of engineers for civil works, a dedicated team of engineers for pipes. And so you end up mirroring that and you find it as well in marketing. You have people that are going to work with uh, a number of uh, type of agencies for communication, for design, for uh, web communication. And these, the categorization is necessary also for the supply market to uh, be easily identified. You know, if you remember, uh, whenever you, you want to do something uh, from the sales side, the key motto is always make sure people know what you are doing and what your specialty are. And uh, so this ends up being how do you sh market yourself and pro promote yourself in one, two, three different categories. And uh, the companies that end up being, you know, doing everything uh, are usually of very huge size and end up also uh, dividing themselves, you know, if you look, I think that one of the uh, best example is in the big consulting companies, you have different practices that are well segmented, uh, because you need to be able to identify who you are, uh, what you do, and what is your customer able to ask you specifically, and if it's not you, it can be someone else in the same company, but you need this identification mechanism. So moving on a little bit from that, um, let's touch a little bit on how do we manage this people-to-people -people relationship and, and building that into really the, the core of how we work in, in sort of the new normal. I mean, Dave, maybe if I bring you back in, you've got a, a good example of this. I mean, you implemented or, or were part of the implementation team of a, of a pretty big digital procurement software suite during lockdown weren't you i mean what what did you see as the pros and cons of that and some of the watch outs the main the main pros of it were 
the ability to have meetings whenever we needed them without worrying about people's location particularly or availability of physical meeting rooms so previously you would you know a meeting might not be able to happen for, for two weeks say because you didn't know everyone was or people had other meetings what we could do virtually was just schedule it because meeting rooms weren't a constraint or whether someone was in London or Blacknell wasn't a constraint um, and also the ability to easily and patch in people from the third party which is Cooper in this case bringing their experts externally and also bringing the partners experts Deloitte's um, from around the world uh, when we needed to without them needing to fly in it was a lot more you know it was a lot more easy uh, the downsides are to do things like process mapping you know brainstorming idea gathering is a lot easier when you're in a face-to-face -face, um scenario. yeah the, the more creative side you mean then or the more sort of at the at the offset the more strategic side of being able to build that team and get a working relationship yeah build the team get the working relationship and also something i'm really cognizant of is some people are really um good at speaking out and putting their views across there's also um, people that are strong in other areas, maybe more introverted. If you're in a physical workshop, it's quite easy to spot people's body language and spot whether they mm -hmm. like what's they like the direction of travel, or maybe they slightly grimace, or maybe they're not being very vocal in supporting of something. But in a virtual environment, it's a lot harder as a facilitator of a requirements gathering session to really ensure everyone's involved in it um, and. And in particular, when people maybe turn their video cameras off um, and, you know, that that kind of stuff when you've got a big audience. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that because, um, I mean, there's a there was a quite an old study, actually, that said that only only seven percent of, of, of someone's language is the spoken word. Where I think it was 38 percent is is tone of voice. And then the other 55 is 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 body language. I hope that adds up to 100. I think it does. Um <laughs> How do you, because yeah, I, I, I would agree with you that it, it's probably more helpful in terms of getting things done faster through not having to rely on travel and book meeting rooms and deal with all of the logistics of face-to-face -face meetings. But then you're absolutely right, especially at the start of a relationship. If you've never met somebody that you're going to be doing business with or working on a project with closely, if there's a company culture or an aversion generally to doing video calls, that is tough isn't it because you're absolutely right you don't know you don't know the emotions behind uh, behind the way someone's communicating a lot of the time exactly and what you know what they might say on a on a camera is not is not what they really think um, and it's a lot easier it's a, it's a lot harder to tease out but you know having said all of that there's there's pros and cons i mean we were, we were able to do the complete end to end design for source to settle fully remotely so it obviously worked, um, but would it have been more effective if we had a blended model with some physical workshops and a lot of virtual stuff? Yes. So I think the future has to be both. Yeah, it has to be both. Yeah, there, there are a couple of great points there, actually, Dave. Now, Thierry, if I could maybe bring you back in there. Um, I think on the one hand, it enables external service providers to maybe bring in experts from from lower cost jurisdictions or, or perhaps experts that are in other parts of the world that would otherwise have been prohibitively expensive to bring into the project 
Um, but on the other hand, you are losing that personal touch potentially at the at the start if you can't have a kickoff meeting together and you know maybe have maybe have dinner and a couple of glasses of wine with one another to get used to <laughs> to the way of working so i mean you're you're in the space as well that you're a, a consultant and predominantly remote based so what do you, what do you see what do you see as that in terms of in terms of the ideal sort of situation of how we work going forward ah uh, yeah i'm i mean i fully agree with david on that is you need an hybrid model um, somehow, so far, uh, I work only remotely with customers that I have, uh, apart from one, but that's uh, more, uh, you know, someone I knew that, or I know that has become a customer. But otherwise, I've never physically met these people. We've seen each other on camera. We've exchanged, you know, you can somehow chit-chat outside of the a pure work uh, part of the exchange. But what I've seen, a, a major change as well, is that when you are purely online, and especially when you have large groups, you tend to have a way higher level of formalism in the exchange. Um, so when you are five, six people around the table, um, you tend to, you know, everyone talking at the same time, and uh, the prioritization of conversation is very different uh, when you are uh, working remotely. And this also, I would say, has advantages because you need to design a clear chair and who is going to uh, regulate the conversation. And this is also pushing people to come on camera to be able to raise a hand, uh, to uh, show with their body language that they want to intervene. Otherwise, uh, it doesn't work. So uh, it's really a, a clear change there in the, the way we interact uh, all together. I think it's going to stay. Uh, it's so easy to uh, not have to spend hours to go from uh, point A to point B to uh, meet someone. And sometimes, and more and more often, you had more travel time than meeting time. So uh, this technology support is really going to, to stay and uh, to enable collaboration uh, in, uh, as uh, Dave was saying, you know, several people, several continents at the same time, just find the right uh, time slot and it happens. Um, on the other hand, you will, yes, say, need uh, the human contact once in a while to uh, build trust, which is a, a very, very uh, interesting concept there, but also um, show human part of the business. You, we are dealing with human people. Uh, we have emotions. Uh, we have good days, we have bad days, all that machines don't have usually. So we need to be able to factor that in uh, the conversation that we are having and the, the way we work as teams as well. I think that's extremely relevant and I 100% agree with you in terms of the hybrid model. I think to round off then, Thierry, if anyone would like to keep in touch with you, uh, what's the best place that they can get hold of you? Very easy, LinkedIn. I mean, there is only one Thierry Fusten in the world, so that's very easy. Uh, <laughs> otherwise, uh, yeah, I think it's the best way. Uh, and uh, on my LinkedIn profile, you have my phone number, my uh, work email. So, And I will link to all of that in the show notes. Dave, anything else you want to say before we round off? Other than saying thank you so much, Thierry. It's great to speak to you again. Um, really enjoyed hearing your perspective and um guess my final thought on this topic is there's three others in three different countries, Bulgaria, UK and France, and here we are 
having this conversation today, which which kind of summarises, I think, um, a lot of the uh, the benefits of this uh, this new world that we're operating in. It's a great time to be in procurement and business generally. Absolutely. Yeah, it's certainly it's good to have the choice, but I think choice is the appropriate word being forced into the situation is I think something we we all uh, will be very happy if we don't have to go down that route again. Thierry, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, we will catch you again next month for another episode. Until then, uh, take care. Thank you very much for listening and bye for now. Mm-hmm.